0: Jeremiah 33, 14 through 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he Shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also... My covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord If I have not established my covenant with day and night, and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant. And will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, as we begin this season of Advent, we are going to look this year at the prophets and minor prophets. And we are going to spend four weeks... Uh, in different minor prophets, the first one here in Jeremiah. I want to set the stage for the history of Israel to this point. God had delivered Israel from Egypt, a land in which they were enslaved, and he had driven out the inhabitants of the land. Now, the Israelites did indeed leave And the Israelites did indeed fight, but God is the one who delivered them, and God is the one who pushed out the inhabitants of the land. And though God had done that, at this time, Israel had completely turned from God, from this great salvation that he gave them, and they had turned and begun to worship other gods. The scriptures call this harlotry. They call this idolatry. Israel, in their idolatry, persisted. This judgment, of which we'll discuss today, did not come at the first instance of disobedience, but rather it was only when their disobedience was complete and mature. Therefore, God brought a judgment. Nevertheless, God remembered the covenant which he himself had made. God made a covenant with Israel, and in covenants there are two parties. Israel had ruined the covenant, and yet God still upheld his intention in the same covenant. In God's anger, though, his people, Jerusalem, has fallen, and his people have been taken captive to the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. When we pick up Jeremiah at this point in the chapter, Jeremiah is in the midst of this taking place. God uses Jeremiah in these passages, and indeed his entire letter, to warn his people of an impending judgment. He gives them time and time again a call to repentance. It's much like Jonah. Jonah's sent to Nineveh, and he proclaims judgment is here. Make yourselves ready for judgment. He doesn't even offer a possibility of return. Nevertheless, Nineveh receives that word, And they repent and God relents from bringing the judgment that he proclaimed. With Jeremiah, he likewise gives them no chance of repentance. There are a few comments to the Israelites, the leaders, the priests, the shepherds to return to the Lord, but it is very clear at the time of Jeremiah's writing, this judgment is sure. And then God uses Jeremiah to speak directly to their kings, their shepherds, their priests. Jeremiah does not just hear words of judgment, but paradoxically, he hears in the midst of receiving the judgment, he hears amazingly gracious and precious words, which are for God's people today. Jeremiah, though he's given a word of impending judgment, he calls the people to repentance and hope in spite of the destruction around them. In this very chapter, as we'll see in a minute, that Jeremiah is writing, they are currently under siege. It is a long-sustained campaign by which Jeremiah and the people of God who he is with are being warred against actively. Jeremiah therefore records this prophecy that all those who go off into captivity would be able to hear the word of the Lord that came to him in that day. There's an amazing thing that takes place. Jeremiah writes his letters down and sends it with the Israelites who go off into captivity so that they would be able to hear the word of the Lord like Jeremiah heard the word of the Lord. So to that end, I want to look at five aspects of today's passage and how it must be applied to Jesus Christ. First, that God promises restoration of his own accord, freely, fully, gracious, God then takes his covenant, calls it to mind with his people, and then says, even though you have broken the covenant, I will uphold my covenant. He then expands this covenant in scope and application. Here he takes the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the Levitical commands, and he expands them in a startling and striking way. He not only expands them But four separate times, he reiterates his promise over and over again so that the people, we God's people who are slow to hear and dull of hearing, might allow it to enter into our minds and our hearts. Finally, we'll see at the end of this chapter how all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Despite their manifold sins, God, through this prophecy, declares that he will raise up a righteous branch for David who will restore his people. This righteous branch isn't just going to throw off their enemies. He's going to take those people and then he's going to make them his offspring so that they could be kings and priests. As God prophesies, they will be the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham, a host too numerous to count or like sands, uh, grains of sand on a seashore. The point of this passage is chiefly this, that it is God himself who will cause the righteous branch to spring up for David and bringing salvation to the otherwise ruined people of God. The chief and central point of this passage, and indeed the entire scriptures, is that God is the one who acts on behalf of his people. We see this in a different way in the time of Exodus. God remembers his people. He sends them into Egypt so that they would cry out. But here in this passage, God's people have not even begun to cry out for mercy or cry out for relief. They're in the midst of receiving the siege of the judgment. They are in the midst of being judged. They have not yet experienced the judgment, experienced remorse by God's grace, and then begun to petition him for relief. No, in the midst of the judgment, God proclaims a promise of his son. In the very midst of the siege against Jerusalem by the Babylonians, God sends his word to his prophet Jeremiah. This is so what is so important. Andy alluded to this in the Sunday school hour, the idea of the baptismal font and the table. They are pictures of what God has done in Christ, not what you are doing of your own impetus or your own initiation. Rather, it is God who is acting. This passage is not about us, it's about God redeeming his people. And unless we see that it is God who moves first, we will not glorify him because of these promises. God's prophets, as they hear his word, do not merely foretell the future, but rather they are sent by God, they're commissioned by him, to call his people to remember who he is and to return to him hearing a promise of what he will do on their behalf. Why is this good news? Why is it good news that God is the one who answers his people's need before they call out to him? It's because at this time in Israel, all had lost hope that the siege could be stopped. I want you to think about it. Just imagine there are hordes of armed soldiers around this building and they're striking at the walls with battering rams. That's what's going on in Jeremiah 33. He's writing a letter. He's hearing the word of the Lord and proclaiming it to God's people while the siege is taking place. These are some of the most gracious, wonderful words in the world. And he's giving these extremely poetic, extremely biblical, theologically heavy words to a people who are so in the depression of their experience that they're. Wondering whether or not they're going to eat each other's children. That is how horrific the sins of God's people are at this time. God has brought a siege to call his people to come out of the drunkenness of their idolatry. And in the midst of bringing that judgment, God of his own initiative sends a gracious word to Jeremiah so that they would hear and trust And turn from their sins and return to the God who purchased them. It is good news. Jeremiah is the gospel of Jeremiah because God's people were so distraught that they would never have asked for mercy. This is the gospel. We are so trapped in our sins that none of us, being dead in sin, have the spiritual energy to look towards our Creator and ask for redemption. It is God of his own initiative who comes and declares to his people that they will be restored. He says to a people experiencing the battering rams and the siege works around their city, he says to those people, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Remember before this time, Israel, which was one people under David and under Solomon, had been rent in two by Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the the, Rehoboam's the son of Solomon, and he harshly treats the people, and the people of Israel flee. They run away saying, what part have we in David? We talked about that that last week. And, And the kingdom had experienced a civil war in which the people who just generations prior were supposed to be pushing out the inhabitants of the land had now put their swords against each other and were slaughtering fellow Israelites, fellow sons of Jacob. In verse 15, we read, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The point of this passage is that it is God who saves his people, not his people not even his people crying out for those things. In fact, it's so much better than just God declaring he is going to save is God does not send Jeremiah an invitation for the people to return, but rather a declaration of what he will do. This is why so much gospel preaching is ineffective in our day because it appeals to people who are trapped in sin to make a decision for Jesus Christ rather than announcing The gospel as the apostles taught it, which we believe in one holy apostolic church, is the announcement of free grace, is declaring to all people what God in Christ has done, reconciled the world to himself. God is the one who causes these things. In fact, throughout Jeremiah's entire book, God has been the one sending the message. It is not Jeremiah who commissioned Jeremiah. But rather, God called Jeremiah, and then when Jeremiah was waiting, he then heard God speak. He didn't ask God for a word. Rather, God is the one who speaks his word and Jeremiah hears. God is the one who raises up the branch. God is the one who will multiply this offspring into a great company. It is God who should therefore be glorified. Throughout Jeremiah's entire book, God has rebuked the kings of Israel for their injustice and their abuse of the people. He told them to repent over and over and they would not. Therefore, out of great love for his people, God is going to give them a king who needs no repentance. If we go back to verse 15, in those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And it is he Who shall execute justice and righteousness in the land? The point of the early parts of Jeremiah in his letter is to describe the nature of the evil of the kings and of the priests and of the false shepherds in their day. They would tax the people aggressively. They would keep the people from understanding God's word and his ways. They would set up idolatries in the midst of his temple. And therefore, God says to those people, none of your kings have repented. None of your priests have repented. I'm going to send you my righteous branch and he'll put justice at work for the people. The righteous branch is going to bring justice and righteousness in the land, in the whole of the land, because God loves his creation. Verse 16, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You can translate righteousness there. The Lord is our salvation. He is what brings us back to health. He brings us back to wholeness. Though both the palace and the temple in Jerusalem were about to be torn down, there is one man who will sit upon the throne and offer up an eternal sacrifice. Jeremiah had just in the prior chapter prophesied that Zedekiah, the king of Judah at the time, will be taken off into captivity into Babylon. Now we're going to read in just a moment of an amazing promise that's going to demand a question. But we have to know what took place immediately in the prior chapter. Jeremiah had said, Zedekiah shall not remain. He will not be spared. He will be given over to the king of the Chaldeans and he'll be taken to Babylon. Verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to to offer burnt offerings and to burn grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever. In the prior chapter, we remember Zedekiah has been told, you will be taken off into captivity. The king of Israel will not live. And yet God gives a word of the Lord to Jeremiah saying, not only David will not ever lack a man, but also the priests will always be able to offer up a sacrifice, not by themselves, but through another person. Though Israel had fully transgressed the covenant given through Moses, God spoke to Jeremiah here of a greater renewed covenant. These verses demand a question. How can David not lack a man to sit on the throne when, as we know both was prophesied and did take place, there was a king who stopped reigning in Jerusalem when it was sieged and destroyed? It's also helpful to remember that in God's economy, God caused David, which we looked at last week, to build the temple and the palace together. They were in fact considered to be part of the same place because God was seen as the true king and the king of Israel was supposed to be a vice king or a vice regent to that king. He was like the vice president of our country, but even even more subjected than that. The king was supposed to write out a copy of the law and put it near him so that he would rule by it. Likewise, the priests and the king, they lived on the grounds of the temple complex. It wasn't the palace over here and the priesthood lives over here. No, they were in the same place. The king's palace and the temple were essentially next door. They were all considered part of the holy land of Israel. It is because God was demonstrating to his people something about the nature of his son. Though God had told the kings to write themselves a copy of the law, the kings are said to be destroyed for their ignorance of God's law. Though God had commanded Aaron and his sons to watch that the fire on the altar shall not go out, they sinned in the midst of the temple. In Leviticus six, twelve, and 13, we, we hear that God says it's paramount that you always watch that the altar has fire upon it. You must keep watch over the altar and therefore be constantly proclaiming my name among you. In Jeremiah seven thirty, Jeremiah writes, for the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house. If you were here last week, this should break your heart. That is called by my name. You see, God doesn't just say that's Israel's temple and they've gone away. I'm rejecting Israel. No, he says the priests who are supposed to offer sacrifices to me have done evil and they've put detestable things in the house that's called by my name. In Jeremiah 23, 11, he also writes, both the prophet and priests are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. The point of this is to show that the kings and the priests had fully rejected God. They had gone off into sins of their own making. They had given up their souls in harlotry to false gods, gods which are no God. And God has said to them, okay, you won't do it. I know you won't do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to send to you a righteous branch. Though the palace and temple at this point are about to be torn down, God is going to cover their guilt. It's very important to see this. God promises David you'll never lack a man on the throne. And he meant something by it. They likely heard one of David's physical descendants will always be physically sitting on a throne. Likewise, God gave a command to Aaron and his sons to make sure that the fire on the altar does not go out. But in this very context of Jeremiah writing, God through Jeremiah is beginning to show his people of the aspect of the new covenant. It is not necessary for a physical king to physically sit on the throne in Jerusalem for David's covenant to be fulfilled. Likewise, it is not that Aaron needs a Levite, one of his sons, to offer up physical fire in a physical temple, but rather there is a much more important thing. Israel at this time had external obedience and internal disobedience, which led to external judgment. But here, God's giving a prophecy of a greater understanding of what he intended in his covenants, which was that there's going to be one who will really reign on my behalf. There's going to be a priest for God's people who will offer up a sacrifice that is eternally significant. Here, he does not say, in these words, that the Levites will never lack a man in the temple but rather, he says, they will never lack, quote, never lack a man in my presence. Something indeed extremely great is being spoken of here. Something, as Jesus said in the Gospels, much greater than Solomon, much greater than the temple. God is going to raise up a man, not, not a son of Adam in sin, but a true son of Adam, will stand before him forever. Again, God's glory is seen in these promises that he freely grants because his promises are not given as payment for works done. They are given liberally. You you see, in this passage, as we've highlighted before, as I've explained before, but I want to impress upon you, none of these words are given in response to a prayer from God's people. Now, it is true in the prior chapter Jeremiah does pray for understanding of a particular vision he had seen. He was told to buy a field in the midst of a siege town. By the way, if you didn't know what happens in a siege town, the land value goes to zero. Um, he's told to buy a field. It's a very bad move, uh, financially speaking. Keep that in mind when you get to the book of Acts. I'm just going to leave that as a hint for you. These people are not doing things in response to God's word. Rather, God is just speaking and proclaiming. Knowing the despair which must have pressed in upon God's people, God declares his word to Jeremiah again and again. It's very interesting to me. In fact, I've tried to even make the sermon match the word here in this, that he just constantly says the same thing. God, in fact, in this passage, you hear, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. (laughs) And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The point is, God is wanting to make his people understand that he's sure about this. He's not gonna change his mind. He's not going to take back the promise. He is sure of what he says. God repeats himself in this passage and through Jeremiah's writing because his people are slow to believe and they are quick to forget. It's the opposite of what we want. We want to be quick to believe and slow to forget. And yet God knows his people. Verse 20, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. It's interesting to note, this is just a speculation that we have, but at this time, Babylon worshipped the sun and the moon, and they worshipped the hosts of heaven. And interestingly, God doesn't even grant the names sun and moon here. He just says day and night. He doesn't give them titles. He just refers to what they're doing. He doesn't at all, all embellish them. I just think that's a a very interesting point. God is saying he's made a covenant with them so that they do not come at their appointed time. Even God here reigns over the sun and moon. God reminds his people here that he is the creator, the one who made day and night. And throughout the scriptures, we see this beautiful pattern that the creator, the one who made the world is also the redeemer, the one who has brought his people out of Egypt and out of bondage. Here in this passage, Jeremiah speaks God's word with irony. It's impossible for God to break his covenants with the day and the night, right? But he says to Jeremiah or to God's people, if you can break my covenant with the day and the night, then my covenant with David and the priests won't last. He's speaking ironically. It's, it's like a rhetorical question. The answer is implied. It's impossible for you to break God's covenant with the day and the night. You've broken the Mosaic covenant indeed, but you can't break the covenant that I have with the day and the night. Here in the Noahic covenant, God has blessed the earth and he gave at that time to Noah a promise saying, while the earth remains, day and night will not cease. And so to God's people, when they hear this word and God speak in this ironic language, they should feel in their hearing, oh, oh, it's impossible for us to do that. So imagine you're an Israelite under siege. Do I believe that God will save us? Is it possible that we won't be utterly destroyed by the armies pressing in upon us? so that God's covenant will be nullified, so that Abraham will come to ruin, that David will be dismayed, that all of God's promises will be seen as broken by us and that we will forever be the scorn of the earth. No, it's impossible for that to take place because God has promised that you cannot break his covenants. Although you break your end of the covenant, your side of the covenant, you cannot break his The God who spoke the universe into existence is seen here as the same one as the one who granted the promises to David and to Levi. It's very interesting that Jeremiah uses the language of covenant with Levi, but it should be understood here just as the Mosaic covenant generally. That God gave his people a institution by which they, through ritual, would learn things about righteousness. God gave his law to lead them to the necessity of Jesus Christ. And so God gave a covenant to Moses or through Moses and God gave a covenant to David. And both of those covenants are called to mind here along with the promise given to Abraham. Here God assures his people that they will be blessed. And in so doing, he not only references the Davidic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, but he also expands the purpose of, of the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 15:5, God promised uh, Abraham as he went and looked at the stars to, to try to number them. And he then declared to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. Not only will they be a multitude of people, but they will be a blessing. They will bless and not curse the rest of the world around them. What God had given to Abraham that he would become a host is now multiplied in great detail. Verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. Remember, before this, Abraham had just been told that he would have many people. Now God says what those people will be like. So I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Just as the creator has ordained the day and the night for their time, so also he is going to bring a redeemer whose offspring will multiply into a great kingdom of priests. And if you know the New Testament, things are beginning to click in your understanding. By God's grace, he's given us a wonderful picture of his revelation. Even though the nations despise Israel's ruin here, even though God says to Jeremiah, take notice of what's happening in the world, God confirms his covenant again and again. Verse 24, have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus, they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Though the nations despise this lowly condition of God's people, God will nevertheless cause David's offspring To rule over the restored offspring of Abraham. Thus says the Lord If I have not established my covenant with day and night, and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy upon them. This is a wonderful passage. What this says is that though God recognized and called out and judged the sin of his people as being a spiritual adultery, a harlotry of going and seeking after other gods, refusing to rest in his grace, refusing to be renewed after the understanding that should have come through God's law and his testimonies, that although they had squandered all of their provisions, like the prodigal of which Jesus used in the parable, God will give them a robe and a ring and bring them back into his home and he'll slay the fatted calf for them. This is what God is going to do. And he's going to do that, not by just forgiving in a general sense or applying some sort of, uh, you know, just waving of his hands and say, "You're, you're welcome to come back No, he says, I'm going to send a righteous branch and he is going to be the one who rules over the formerly unruly people. See, this is a prophecy about the new covenant. This is a prophecy that says those people who often went astray are now going to become people who are ruled by a righteous branch. And that righteous branch won't be like the king's which they experienced in their sin, they won't be kings who operate like tyrants or deal harshly with the people. No, they'll rest under his rule. Though Jeremiah had promised, prophesied faithfully, he didn't. He didn't dis, uh, disconnect himself from the people. He didn't disconnect himself from the word. Israel, though Jeremiah prophesied prophesied faithfully, had to wait hundreds of years until what they anticipated would come to pass. If you want to think about, we're going to, we're going to examine here in a few minutes just the idea of our time and putting ourselves in this story. But it, I just want you to think about it. six, seven, 800 years go by uh, I'm, I'm a little loose on my history here, but I just want you to think about that. That's before the founding of America. That's before the inventing of the printing press. Forget electricity and the internet. This is, this is a time period that is when you round it, it would be better to round it to the millennia than to the centuries. This is the point of God's word is he's giving a promise and though it is slow to come to pass, it will surely come to pass. As we know from the Gospels, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent Jesus Christ, the righteous branch, who would restore his people. As Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesied at the announcement of John's birth, God had completely fulfilled the word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah. Remember, what was Zechariah doing in the temple that day? He was offering up incense, And I think that's a metonym or a a word to just say he was doing a service in the Holy of Holies. And if you didn't understand what it looked like, it was completely dark. They didn't have any LEDs or or glow lights. And usually the first thing you would do is you would light the lampstand. As Zechariah comes into the temple and he lights the lampstand and he offers up incense prayers before God, he hears a prophecy. And then when God brings that prophecy to completion, he then declares his son's name. And then he, again, being a priest, he prophesies of what God has done. In Luke 1, 68 and 69, we read, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people.'" And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Where? In the house of his servant David. He goes on to say in a few verses that God has sent his son to not only fulfill the promise given to David, but also to Abraham. He says in verse 72 to show mercy, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Do you see what Zechariah is doing? Zechariah knows Jeremiah 33. He knows this passage. He knows the understanding of what all of God's promises upon the Messiah are to be uh, fulfilled with or to be fulfilled in. He understands what God will do. He will not only fulfill the Davidic covenant, he will also fulfill his own covenant uh, with Abraham. Beginning with his gospel, therefore, Matthew, the gospel writer, is very careful to show that through Jesus' genealogy and birth, that he is the fulfillment of all of God's word. In the very first line of Matthew's gospel, Matthew declares, this is the genealogy of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So much of our Christian world today has a detached Christ from the covenants of God and it's it's to our shame, and we ought to, as a people as god 's people, restore our understanding of his covenants and his promises, so that when we celebrate who Christ is, when we experience Christ in our faith, that we understand him, that he isn't just coming to the world at any random time in any random context, to save God's people, we don't know who those are, in any random way. No, he's coming to fulfill the very specific promises of Abraham and David and Moses. He is coming to be the complete fulfillment of all of which God God's people could never fulfill. Mentioning David as the king, Matthew goes on in that very first chapter to highlight God's redemptive power. He says, David was the father of Solomon By the wife of Uriah. That one verse is actually saying something so powerfully about what God's doing in Jeremiah and at the coming of the Lord Jesus. He is overlooking God's people's sins and he is working through them even though they are flawed. He came through a line that was marked by adultery. And that's the point of Matthew writing that sentence. There are beautiful places in the Gospels when you read them. I hope you see them every once in a while. They are the Gospel in a nutshell or the Gospel in one line. That is a place that I believe the Gospel is presented quite beautifully because it says, God didn't dismiss using David because of his sin. David begat Solomon, who Solomon, David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, the man that he murdered. God, therefore, is able, through the coming of Christ we see, to bring forth a pure child, even through a line of wicked men. Finally, Matthew shows God's watchful eye, for he highlights King Josiah's sons in the context of Jeremiah. He says, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. He's wanting to say that in some way, just as as the Hebrew writer says that Moses tithed in Abraham because he was in his loins, that Christ himself went into captivity with his people because he was considered to be with them. Verse 20 in Matthew 1, we hear this about Joseph, one of the clearest points in Matthew's gospel where he's putting his finger on Jesus being the son of David. But as he considered these things, as Joseph considers, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And here is one of the most precious passages in all of the New Testament. It might be my favorite verse in Matthew. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus for he shall, he will save his people from their sins. God's doing. Mary didn't ask of this. Joseph was about to dismiss it. God's doing. She will bear a son. It will come to pass. You shall call his name Jesus. You're gonna do something in obedience for he will save his people from their sins. doesn't say he's going to make salvation possible. It doesn't make... It doesn't mean he's going to make an atonement, which has to be received if it's going to be effective. No, he says he will, it will come to pass. He will save his people from their sins. And in in fact, what's so beautiful is it even hints that these aren't just God's people. These are Jesus' people. He's going to save his people from their sins. As in Jeremiah's day, so also at the coming of Christ, God's people were and still are in darkness. In Jeremiah's day, many people had given up hope that God would redeem his people at all. But think about what took place at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph lives in a land ruled in two great evil ways. First is by the occupation of an invaded Roman army. And they are ruled over at the time of Christ by a half-Gentile false king who his own son doesn't even get the name king. He gets the name Tetrarch. He, he's not even powerful enough to be a king. He's, he's like a governor kind of half, half-breed thing. This is what the, the Israelites experienced. Now, I want you to imagine the identity of an Israelite and what it must have felt like, spiritually speaking, to be an Israelite in those days. In the days of the captivity that we read about with Jeremiah, they were judged, sacked, or sieged, and taken out of the land. It's very clear that they were under judgment. But God brought an even darker judgment in a sense in terms of what he was doing through it to the people of Israel. They're not taken out of the land. They're judged in the land. Why is this more deluding? Because some of them thought, we're in the land. Things are going well. We have the Pharisees. We have some power with Rome. We have some authority. They occasionally acquiesce to our demands. We are, we are getting some self-rule, and at least there isn't wars and strife. You see, the spiritual delusion at the time of Jesus' day was far greater than what took place in Jeremiah's day. When you're in siege, when you're under siege, when you're in captivity, you all know what's taking place but being occupied by a foreign invading army lulls you into passivity. It lulls you into the sense that things are generally okay. Things might be okay. The point is this. If you want to think about it like this, you can understand it. It's one thing to be in prison. Prison would be terrible. Agreed? It's another thing to be captive and trapped hostage in your house at gunpoint. That's what's going on in the days of the Roman occupation. And this is so... It's so subtle in the Gospels, but it's highlighted by Luke over and over again. Luke presents that the kings of, of Rome, that the governors that they've installed, are able to cause the entire earth to have to obey at their command. That's why Jesus, with his parents, travels to Bethlehem, is because of that census which they're able to wield, and the people of Israel just have to obey. Likewise, in our own day, with an honest look at the state of the world today, we too will despair. And in fact, I think it is wrong to not despair in one sense. Not that everything is getting worse and worse, it is. Not that everything is getting worse and worse unto the breaking of God's promises. Rather, it is getting worse and worse unto the judgment of God against our land. Our land is a land that is drowning under the violent blood of abortion. Our land is a land which looks to the state as a god. We prop up politicians and judges as little demigods who can save and deliver the people with just a striking of the pen or a banging of the gavel. And we love it. Our entire culture in America is in love with politics. For all the strife that it causes, for all the stress that it brings to our day, we are addicted to finding out what the latest senator's gaffe was or the latest declaration from the courts. We look to the state as a god. In our culture, we celebrate sexual brokenness and we delude each other, affirming mutual destruction, We are unable, like the Ninevites, to tell our right hand from our left hand. To quote a fellow brother in the Lord, Peter Lightheart, we don't even know who boys and girls are anymore. This is the nature of the delusion upon us. In the church, the church does not escape the delusion in our culture. We look to false shepherds who tickle ears with man-centered messages while our knowledge of God's word and his ways is weak. If you asked most Christians to name all 66 books of the Bible, it would be hard. And I think it would be hard for most of us, too. That's not a judgment. That's just an evaluation. You see, taking the temperature doesn't necessarily mean setting the thermostat. I'll let you work that metaphor out on your own. (laughs) The point is, our age is an age that is dying, and I say well that it was on its way. The point is this, that God in the sending of Jesus Christ showed his mercy to his people by raising up a righteous branch who came to die in their place and raise them to life. The only hope we have for our world is that it would die and be reborn in Jesus Christ. Only by trusting in Christ can we have any peace at all. For his blood is the only thing which washes away sins. Do you want to know the only answer for the sin of abortion in our country? It's not a law, it's not even the stopping of abortion. That would be wonderful. The most important thing is that our nation receive the only blood which matters the blood which we know from Scripture speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's the blood of Jesus. Unless we forget what we are about to come to today is a celebration that Paul says we all participate, we celebrate in the body and blood of our Lord. Only by trusting in Christ may we have any peace. Only by coming to the God who raises the dead can we find a hope for a dying world, a dying culture. And only by being renewed by the Spirit can we be agents of his renewal around us. If you, like I, am getting sick of the darkness in our culture and are beginning to tune out Twitter and Facebook, and it's been years since I've ever watched TV news, and I'm now wanting to even get rid of radio news. We can't just shrink back and not notice what takes place in our world today. We are called, like Jesus, to be burning and shining lamps and therefore, we need his gospel to recreate not only ourselves, but we need him to recreate our understanding of the world around us and recognize the answer isn't another law or even strong money, which I desperately want. Or that is righteous money, not unrighteous money. Or, or even the, the elimination of abortion or the setting to right various cultural things. Brothers and sisters, if we gain all those things but do not gain Christ, it's as if we are occupied by the Romans. We're in the land and we think we're fine, but we're actually under delusion because we're not being reigned by God, we're being reigned by Rome. That's the trouble, that's the Babylonian captivity, to quote a phrase from Reformed history, of the church today. It's not just inerrant, aberrant doctrine, It's also that our world is dying and we do not know how to diagnose it. The point is we vitally need the renewal of the spirit, the same spirit who overshadowed Mary and caused the Lord Jesus to be born. That one who has come into the world is a renewing Christ. He is a renewing righteous branch. He is a sanctifying branch. Only by being renewed by the Spirit can we be agents of renewal around us, and that is our mission as Christians. This awareness of our own need with an honest look first at the world and then God's salvation in Christ is the design of the season of Advent. That is the point of this season. It's not to be sorrowful of our own sin, although that is good, that's also re- recapitulated in Lent. It's not for us to just have morose songs and minor keys during worship instead of happy songs. It is not that we just read out of the minor prophets instead of the gospels during Advent. The point of the season of Advent is as Christians to ask God for a sobering understanding of the need for the return of Jesus Christ. And it is only when Jesus Christ redeems his people, restores them, sends his spirit so that they are agents of his kingdom in the world that will usher in his return. I believe that this awareness of our own need must start with a look at the way God has designed his world to work, then a look at the way the world works, and then a look to to the new world that he's bringing about in Christ. We have to see the creator, the redeemer and judge, and the righteous branch. We cannot understand Jesus Christ apart from the covenants, but we cannot also understand Jesus Christ apart from the judgments. It's important for us to look, and we must be sober as we do so. Therefore, in seeing God's ability to restore his people, let us look unto Christ who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Please join with me as we pray. Father, we thank you that at the fullness of time, you sent your son, not only to be a perfect Israelite, not only to restore his people, but also to receive the judgment which they justly deserved. We know from your word, and it is plainly true from your ways, that no siege against a city could ever pay for sin. And so we thank you that his death and resurrection is the means by which we can have peace with you. And that peace with you is not something only for our hearts or for our individual lives or even for our cloisters and churches and little subcultures. Help us to be, God, those sorts of people who go into the world, into every sphere and proclaim not only your lordship, but your death and your resurrection. We thank you for this. We pray that you would prepare our hearts this season that we would be able to rightly anticipate and call for your return. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.